Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters Sports Bar Navy Yard is hiring. Experienced servers and hosts should email brett at waltersdc.com. That's B-R-E-T-T at waltersdc.com for more information or stop by and fill out an application any day after 10 a.m. Come join one of the busiest restaurants around the ballpark for this summer or beyond. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The runners lead. Thomas from third, Escobar from second. Adams from first in the pitch. Swinging a ground ball through the hole, a base hit into left field. Thomas has scored. Rounding third, coming home is Escobar. He will score, standing the throw late, stopping at second. On the play is Adams, and on at first with a single left and two runs batted in, scoring Thomas. And Escobar is Victor Robles, his first hit of the year. And the Nationals now lead by the score of three to nothing. See Sheck to the belt. His pitch gets away from Adams to the backstop. And here comes Tucker, and he'll score the tying run. Now the 3-0. Chavis swings, and it's a ground ball. Pass to drawn in shortstop Escobar for a base hit. Pirates take the lead. Van Meter scores. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, April 18th, 2022, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is in Pittsburgh. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, unfortunately, Easter Sunday 2022 ended up not being a good day for our Nats. The Easter Bunny was not kind to the Nats. The Nats blew a 3-0 six-inning lead in what ended up being a 5-3 loss at the Pirates. Nats end up losing three of four games at the Pirates. Nats now 4-7 and seven on the season. So the same Nats team that won two of three at the reigning defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves ends up losing three of four at the Pirates. I know that that's baseball and we see stuff like that happen all the time, Mark, but man, this was a frustrating game on Sunday in what really ended up being a frustrating series for the Nets. Frustrating, disappointing, take your pick of words for it, Al, but yeah, it absolutely was. There's no reason that they shouldn't have at least split the four-gamer here. They were in position to win some of these games, especially this one. You're up 3 nothing most of the afternoon. You had chances to add to that lead. Didn't do it. The defense was atrocious, and Davey called them out on it after the fact. Those little things we got to clean up. We can't give teams extra outs, and we're not going to win games like that. So, we, we, you know, like I always say we got to get 27 outs, not 30, not 31. And then for the first time this year, we saw the A bullpen, as it were, not hold a lead. 
there are different reasons for why that happened. There were some interesting decisions Davey made on who to use in certain spots. We'll get to all that. But, you know, big picture to come away from this losing three out of four and be four and seven going home after a pretty encouraging start to the road trip. Yeah, that's very disappointing. And I would say frustrating is also appropriate. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to sort of sink your teeth into with this game on Sunday. I know for me, what stands out, and there's a lot that stands out, but, you know, here you have this Nats bullpen, right? And we've talked about this so much. Every game, Davey is having to use three to five relievers. And, you know, for a while on Sunday, it looked like Patrick Corbin might be the guy. He might turn the trick. He might get to that sixth inning mark, but things fell apart for him in that sixth inning. He ends up going five into third innings. So here we are now, 11 games into the season, the Nats bullpen has totaled 45 and a third innings over those 11 games. I don't care how good your bullpen is. You're not going to have every game three to five relievers who are on, who have it on that day. And I think these last two games are really instructive because it's not like the Nats bullpen from top to bottom has been bad in each of these last two games. But one guy in each game has faltered, and that's been enough. Kyle Finnegan on Saturday evening, giving up the three runs two earned, getting just two outs in the bottom of the eighth. And then Steve Ciszek on Sunday afternoon, bottom of the seventh, gives up three runs, allows just one out. You're not going to have three to five guys every game who have it. And I mean, I don't think this is a revelation. I think most people who follow baseball understand that. But we're seeing that here because these other relievers in these games are actually doing a decent job. The bullpen is fighting. It's not just this complete train wreck, but it's a big ask every game for three to five guys to be on. And three to five guys are not on in every game for the Nets. And that's why I think the sixth inning is even more important in this game than the seventh inning. And that's the inning that you thought, every reason to believe, Patrick Corbin is going to be the first to get through six innings this year. He gets through five on 70 pitches. He, I thought, looked pretty good most of the day. And you get to the sixth, and that starts with an error, of course, because this game was filled with them. Pitch is set on the ground at third. Franco bobbles it and picks it up and throws late. And the ball gets by Bell. This one will be backed up by Adams. That'll be Michael Franco's third error of the ball game, and it almost ended up being a fourth. But then walk, single, walk, and he's out of the game. You can't do that there if you're him. You have a team on the ropes. You have a chance to finish strong. Think about all those times that Max Scherzer used to talk about the last 10 to 15 pitches, how it would define his start and how he'd see the finish line coming and stalk off the mound after finishing it out. This was the exact opposite of that. You just let them back into the game, and that's discouraging. Now, you know, there were good things that Corbin did in this game compared to what we've seen from him in the past. I mean, there were some positives to draw, but you got to finish what you started. He wasn't tired, I don't think. He, you know, yeah, he's facing the lineup a third time, but I mean, it's walks. It's him not being aggressive and doing what he was doing earlier in the game. And I just think that set in motion all the things that happened after that and turned what really should have been a pretty simple win into an ugly loss. Yeah, the final line for Corbin ends up being two runs in five and a third innings. He recorded four strikeouts. He gave up just three hits, all of which were singles, but he issued three walks. He threw 92 pitches over the five and a third innings. So he begins his outing with five scoreless innings. You're loving what you're seeing from Patrick Corbin, and then comes him giving up the two runs in the bottom of the six. Now, you know, on the one hand, you could maybe make the case, well, did he not respond well to how that inning began? Jake Marisnik began the bottom of the six by reaching first base on a fielding error by 
Michael Franco on what was his third error of the game. Uh, You bet we're going to talk some Michael Franco in a bit here. But Corbin sort of righted the wrong in picking off Marisnik. He gets tagged out in an attempt to steal a second base. So, you know, I'm saying to myself, like, is this the Gio Gonzalez thing of the defense fails you and then the pitcher falls apart? Well, Corbin sort of, like I said, righted the wrong in picking off Marisnik. But then he does, in fact, Start giving up the walks. One out, seven pitch walk at Daniel Vogelback, who was down 0-2. Corbin had Vogelback down 0-2, ends up walking him on seven pitches, then gives up a single to Michael Chavis, despite Chavis having it down 1-2. And then Corbin issues another walk, a six-pitch walk of Yoshi Tsutsugo to load the bases. And then that was it. It was interesting. Davey pulled Corbin from the game. Both of the runs charged to Corbin came with Victor Arano pitching. I mean, what do you think happened? Did Corbin... Did he get frustrated because of the defense? Like, Because he did seem to just lose it all of a sudden. And that was even after picking off Marisnik. Yeah, no, I don't think it was that. He said he wasn't tired. He was up to 90 pitches for the first time, but he said he didn't feel like he was um, you know, fatigued at all. He credited them with some good at-bats. But you've got to, like you said, when you're ahead in the count, you got to be able to put them away. And you know, one of the things he did well in this game early on, and we talked about this going into it, is he was – Throwing sliders for strikes early in the count, and that makes the hitter think it's going to be a strike and be in the zone so that he can then kind of bury those last ones and put them away. And I think there towards the end, maybe he's trying to be too perfect and throw those pitches that are just not competitive. And if you know they're not going to be in the zone with two strikes, even with two strikes, you're going to take it. You're never going to bite on that to begin with. So I think maybe it's, you know, he's a little shell-shocked after being hit so hard the last couple of years. But, like, you get ahead in the count, you don't have to throw a pitch out of the zone. Like, you throw a good quality strike in the zone, they might miss it, they might take it, or they might hit it at somebody. You don't have to make the perfect pitch there. And I wonder if that was happening to him when he got to that spot in the game. So in terms of Davey's bullpen usage on Sunday, Davey went Victor Arano to Steve Ciszek to Sean Doolittle to Andres Machado. Uh, Arano was, he was okay. I mean, he gave up a two-out RBI single to Ben Gamble, did strike out Roberto Perez on three pitches. Ciszek was a mess. Uh, Like we said, gave up three runs, got just one out in that bottom of the seventh inning. He issued a one-out bases loaded run scoring wild pitch that made you want to scream. Although you could argue that maybe should have been a pass ball on Riley Adams. It's kind of an interesting uh, moment there. But then Sean Doolittle comes into the game, does a good job in the bottom of the seventh. Andres Machado tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth. Did you think that Davey should have gone to Doolittle sooner? That's what I was thinking all along. You've got three out of their first four hitters due up are either left-handed or switch hitters. I'm thinking, especially the way that he's used these guys so far, that's your spot. Use Doolittle. I think maybe he was saving him for later on what he thought would be the next inning to get Sutsugo. Instead, he said he liked the matchup. He thought that Ciszek with his sliders, uh, the rising fastball, that was a good matchup against uh, even the left-handed hitters. But as we saw, it was pretty ugly. He was falling behind hitters. You know, the quote-unquote wild pitch, it should be a pass ball. We'll see if that gets changed Riley Adams admitted he absolutely needs to catch that ball. Davey Martinez thought it was a pass ball, didn't even know it had been called a wild pitch. So that was not good. And then he falls behind 3-0 and with the bases loaded, and Chavis hits a, swings at it and hits it through the drawn-in infield. Now the run comes in. So I think it all starts with the falling behind. I thought, yes, that maybe Doolittle in that spot, especially because Ciszek had pitched the night before, went more than an inning. He threw 24 pitches in an inning and two-thirds the night before. Now, he said he didn't feel, you know, he felt fine. It wasn't like he was 
tired from having pitched the night before. But it just, it seemed like that was a situation screaming for Doolittle, who's been so good. You kind of have the best matchups it felt like to me against him in the seventh. It didn't go right. But like you said, if you're asking every one of your relievers to be perfect every night, that's a tough line to walk. You've got to give them some cushion, and that's where either the starter going deeper or score some more runs, you know? There were opportunities to not leave that as a one-run game. So you could point to a lot of things that didn't go right there. Ciszek didn't have it for the first time, really. Was he the right guy for the spot? I don't know. I kind of felt like maybe somebody else. But even if it is Doolittle, even if Ciszek gets out of it, you still need two more innings from your bullpen, and who knows if they were going to get it done. By the way, that uh, Michael Chavis one-out ribby single in the bottom of the seventh with the drawn and infield past a diving Alcides Escobar. I had to look this up. Did Alcides Escobar change his first name to past a diving? Because every time I hear his name these days, it's past a diving Escobar. Happened again. Look, I know he's trying, but there are plays there to be made that he's not making right now. And I'm noticing this every game here watching the Nats. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Get your degree in savings during Window Nation's spring break sale. Get two free windows for every two windows that you buy for as many as you need and make no down payment and pay no interest for 24 months. That's two years. Just call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. As you likely know, natural gas prices continue to rise. Does your energy bill say that you're using more energy than similar homes? This is because you need new windows. Increase the value of your home with curb appeal and save money on your energy bills by replacing your old inefficient windows with new energy efficient window nation windows buy two windows get two windows free pay nothing for two years no money down no payments and no interest for two full years save thousands of dollars these are savings that you'll only see once this year take advantage of Window Nation special offer. Window Nation has installed over a million windows and has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. 
Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. And the pitch, swinging a ground ball wide at third. Franco can't pick it up. Now trying to get it out at first. He won't there, and the throw bounces past Bell. This could be two errors on the play. Over to third goes Tetsugo. Well, he didn't field it cleanly. It rolled between his legs. Then he went and picked it up and threw with from a flat-footed position and bounced it past Bell. And with that, Tetsugo had stopped at second, goes to third. That's a double play ball. But they don't get it out. And then Franco compounds it by bouncing one past Bell to allow the runner to go to third. So they could give him two errors. Absolutely. And I, they I, do. One for booting the ball, one for throwing it away. Allowing the runner to go to third. If we're going to talk Nats defense, we could write a whole book, basically, of what we saw from Michael Franco on Sunday. What a wild game. What a strange game for him as an at starting third baseman. One for three with a double and a walk. He commits three errors. He also, though, makes a sparkling defensive play. So just an odd circumstance here for Franco on Sunday. So Franco in the bottom of the second makes two errors on one play. He mishandles a Diego Castillo grounder, then commits a throwing error and throwing to first base. But then Franco makes an excellent defensive play to end the bottom of the fourth. And so Franco, who made two errors on a ball hit by Castillo in the second inning, turns that around with the play of the day defensively for the Nationals. With a runner on first, two outs, that's up 3 nothing. Franco, again, in defending a Diego Castillo grounder, this time makes a diving backhanded catch, a really, you know, like Brooks Robinson-like play right by the foul line there. And then from his left knee while falling forward, fires to first base for the out. I mean, a tremendous play by Michael Franco. But then he committed error number three in the game and mishandling that Jake Marisnik grounder to begin the bottom of the sixth. He also had that double top of the seventh, a two-out double to left field, but Josh Bell on the play got thrown out at home for the third out. Gamble's throw, the relay home from Castillo. Bell, the head first dive to avoid the tag, but he is out. He tried to avoid the tag to the back corner. Perez put the tag on him with a dive. There were all kinds of things happening in plays involving Michael Franco on Sunday, but clearly three errors unacceptable from your third baseman. And it was almost four because the third air could have had a double air attached to it. He bounced the throw and Bell saved him on that one. And that's where there's a couple of things here. First of all, the footwork, everything to field the ball initially was not good. But then once you've already booted it once, you have to know, am I actually going to throw this guy out or not? Don't force the issue. If you have to eat it, just eat it. Take your air, give him one base. So for him to try to make those throws that in all likelihood were not going to get the guy out in the end just compounds what's already a bad situation. And I think there was frustration from Davey Martinez on that as well. 
You talk about Franco Escobar and Cesar Hernandez. These are veteran infielders, and they may not all be you know, gold glovers, although Cesar won one a couple years ago. I am surprised at some of the mistakes that they've made, how they have not looked crisp and smooth, the three of them. They should be better than that. These are not young infielders. This is not Luis Garcia out there. These are veterans who you're going to make physical errors from time to time. But there's some mental errors there, too. There's some sloppiness. There were double plays that could have been turned. You know, Franco, in a big spot there late in the game, Franco fields a chopper. It looked like Doolittle's going to get out of the whole thing. And he ends up, you know, making a decent throw to second. And now Hernandez can't make the turn. It was a very slow turn. You had Escobar making a turn more difficult than it needed to be. I don't know why this is the case, but it feels like those three, you should be expecting better from them given their experience. And, you know, they're not new at this. They should be a little crisper out there in those situations. Yeah, I would say, though, with Franco, I mean, his reputation is not of a great defensive player. Michael Franco last season for the Orioles, 800 plus innings at third base, minus eight defensive runs saved in his career as a third baseman, minus 36 defensive run saved. I mean, whatever value he's usually brought to teams has been with his bad. And, you know, I don't know if the plan was for him to be the starting third baseman or not. I'd like to see the alternate universe in which Carter Keboom is healthy. Would the Nats have gone with Carter as a third baseman or would Franco have ended up winning that job? But whatever the case, I mean, Franco is the Nats everyday third baseman. I mean, he, every game is that Nats starting third baseman. And some games, depending on who's playing, he's rather up there in the batting lineup too. I mean, you know, it's not really (laughs) supposed to be like this, but that's the way that it's played out. You know, it's tricky. I mean, third base, a tough defensive spot. I remember Ian Desmond used to do this every year. He'd commit errors in April, and then as the season would go on, he'd end up being actually quite good defensively. So I don't want to overreact to one game, but that was tough. And again, you had that great play that he made. So it's like, you see that he's capable of it, but man, those three errors really loom large. And I know that you can't, and nor should you, always use errors to judge defense. But this is a game in which the errors were real errors. These were actual tangible errors that were bad plays by Franco. Yeah, no, there's no getting around that one. He made a great play on top of it all that. Yes, of course. But those are routine plays that you have to make. And yeah, I don't think he was their plan A all along. They wanted Carter Keboom to be the third baseman. I think it would have taken a pretty awful spring from Carter for that to change. Now, it's going to be at least June before he's ready after he suffers the elbow injury. And you don't really know, not like he's a known quantity or anything like that. So I am interested to see how they proceed here. Is it just Franco's no matter what, sink or swim? Is there any other alternative? They don't have a whole lot of choices. Maybe when A. Ray Adrianza, who you know still hasn't made his season debut after straining his quadriceps, comes in, he has played some third base. I don't think they ever really viewed him as an everyday player. He's a utility infielder, but maybe that's something that we would see eventually when he gets here. It is pretty striking how many lack of alternate options they have at third base and honestly at shortstop as well, because there really is nothing behind Escobar unless you want to throw Luis Garcia to the Wolves or Lucius Fox to the Wolves, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, when it came to the Nats offense on Sunday, this was another game in which the Nats did score early, and it's been good to see that the Nats are jumping out to leads, but this was another game in which the Nats did not hit for power, and I, you know, I hate to be like a broken record on this, but the Nats just do not hit for power. They're not doing that right now. I do think that that will change, but the Nats finished the game with eight hits, seven of which were singles. The Nats had seven singles and a double. They did draw six walks. They have been drawing more walks lately. That's good. Did go three of 10 with runners in scoring position, but 
You know, it's frustrating watching this because you know that the Nats are capable of hitting for power. I mean, Nelson Cruz is not hitting for any power. That's going to change. We all get that. But for now, the Nats are one of the weaker hitting teams in the majors in terms of hitting for power. 11 games now for the Nats this season, a total of just seven home runs, a team slugging percentage of just 324. And you think about the big inning that the Nats did have on Sunday, that three-run top of the second inning. I mean, again, great to score three runs in an inning, but how did the Nats do it? Walk, single, 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 single. Like, there's an opportunity there. Where's a double? Where's a three-run homer? You know, where's a big extra base hit? And you just are not seeing much in the way of the extra base hit right now with this team. I'm going to give a little bit of a pass here, at least the last two days. It was really cold here over the weekend. 42 degrees at first pitch on Sunday, which was one degree off the record low for Nationals history in any game. They've never started a game at less than 41 degrees. So it was tough. The ball is not going to carry. You saw it a little bit better in Atlanta when the weather was warm there. So I'm going to give a little bit of that. Nelson Cruz is going to hit for power. Soto is going to hit for power. Josh Bell is going to hit for power. I'm not too worried about that. Now, we've talked all along about the bottom half of the lineup. Are they able to produce? Now, they got in that inning, at least, they got the production. The RBIs came from Riley Adams and Victor Robles. Hallelujah. Both of them were 0 for coming into the game. Robles, even more dramatic at 0 for 18, came through. So that's good stuff. But consistently, you haven't seen that kind of production from them. I don't know. I'm not terribly worried in the bigger picture here about this. I still feel like this is a team that can score four or even five runs on a somewhat regular basis. They're not there yet. Let's see. Eventually, the weather's got to warm up a little bit. Maybe it comes up on the next road trip, but they actually go to San Francisco and Denver. So maybe it's not going to happen early in the season out there as far as warm weather. But I think it'll be all right. It could be better than this. You know, it doesn't help when you're running yourself into outs either. And that was a potential rally in the seventh on the one double by Franco. And now Bell gets thrown out on the plate on a very aggressive send by Gary DeSarcina. Bob Senley Henley cannot be blamed for that one. That was a tough spot there. Yeah, I mean, I do think the Nats will hit, like we've said, but uh, not hitting in the way that you want them to be hitting so far. It was good to see Victor Robles finally get his first hit of the season. And it was a big hit that Nats three runs second to one out two runs single through the left side of the infield. How about what happened, though, to Victor in the top of the eighth? He strikes out for the third out. It sure looked like he got jobbed by the home plate umpire, Ed Hickox, in that plate appearance. Now, I mean, Victor Robles is not going to get the Ted Williams benefit of the doubt on cold strikes. I understand that, nor should Robles get that benefit of the doubt. But, I mean, fair is fair. And I don't know if old Ed had Easter dinner plans or what, but man, I mean, he seemed like he wanted this game over with in that plate appearance. So, you know, you think about Victor over these last two games. I know he was doing the work with the hitting coach Darnell Coles and not starting each of the first two games in the series. He had the hard luck out in game three on Saturday evening. He hit the ball hard, but right to Diego Castillo. He gets, you know, at least semi-jobbed on that strikeout in the eighth. He does have the single in this game. He did have the walk in the previous game. So maybe we're seeing some kind of baby steps here. I feel like with Victor, it's like with Patrick Corbin. Any positive signs you can get at this point, you take because you so want to see the guy return to his 2019 form. But at least he does finally have himself a hit this season. Yeah, that was good. There were some encouraging signs. That last at bat was not his fault. Strike two was an egregious strike call. And then strike three was even worse. It was even further outside. So uh, I feel for him on that one. The one thing I didn't like from him, he comes up in the sixth inning, it's first and second one out, and he puts down the bunt. And, you know, it's officially a sacrifice, but it felt to me like he's bunting for a hit. He was running hard 
down the line and ends up getting thrown out. And I didn't love that. If that's all you think you can do, if you think that's your best chance of getting on that situation, then you better put down a better bunt than that. It was towards the third base side, but not really far enough. It was right where a pitcher could pick it up and throw him out. If you're really committed to the bunt there, I think I'd rather see him try to push bunt it to the other side of the infield past the pitcher. But you got two on and one out, a chance to tack on to the lead you've already got. You swung the bat well earlier. I think I would have liked to see him swing away there and not try to uh, get on in that manner. So that bunt, that is totally his call. He was not told to do that. I don't know. Uh, I didn't ask about that afterwards. The way that he ran, like the location of the bunt was what you would expect from a sacrifice with runners on first and second. The way he ran down the line suggested to me that he's trying to beat it out for a hit. And if there's nobody out, I see maybe calling for it with one out. I'm a little surprised by that because now you're putting everything on Cesar Hernandez to drive them in and he didn't. And now you never got to Soto. So I'd be curious to know the answer behind that. My feeling is he probably did that on his own, and he's probably doing it for a hit, not necessarily for a sacrifice. All right, so what is next for the Nats? Well, what is next is a lengthy homestand. A 10-game homestand is coming up for the Nats. Four games against Arizona, three against San Francisco, three against Miami. Game one of the homestand is game one of the four-game series against the Diamondbacks, Monday night, 705 Josiah Gray versus Madison Bumgarner. How about Josiah Gray? Game one of his season, Max Scherzer. Game two of his season, Max Freed. Game three of his season, Madison Bumgarner. But rain is all over the forecast for Monday night. So I was thinking about this. If you're Davey Martinez, do you want the rain out? Because you and your team and your pitching staff sure could use a day off. Or do you not want the rain out? Because that'll obviously mean a doubleheader. And doubleheaders this season, nine innings apiece. And so that could send your pitching staff Uh, right back into being taxed. I'm not sure which is best for the Nats, but it sure looks like they may be getting a day off on Monday. It's a little bit of a Sophie's choice here, isn't it? (laughs) You know, Um, they've played 11 in a row. You could sure use a day off for everybody's sanity, I think, and health. But Len, like you said, now you've got to play two and they don't have another day off until next Monday. I would think if they pretty clearly see that the forecast is as bad as it looks like it's going to be, and not just rain, but it's going to be really cold too, it's going to be miserable. I would have a feeling, maybe I'm being optimistic here, but I have a feeling they would call this one off early and not take a chance. And now, you know, the downside is, like you said, if if this is against a division opponent, you can schedule doubleheader later in the season. But this is the Dimebacks' only trip here. So you do have to play two, either probably Tuesday or Wednesday. You're not going to play it Thursday on a getaway day. You know, you can call up an extra player for that day. Maybe that helps. You have Paolo Espino, who hasn't been needed a lot. He could maybe spot start or give you a long relief. I think they could get through with it, but it is going to require better work from their starters this time around than they've been getting. Otherwise, you get one bad start in there where somebody's getting knocked out in the third inning. It can have a really bad domino effect. So we'll see. You never predict the weather, but I am not totally optimistic that we're going to be talking on Monday night. I think we may be getting a day off, a well-deserved day off for everyone, including ourselves, if it comes to that. That's right. We're working hard. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this. I mean, we all understand why we're having a 162-game season. The owners and the players want their money, which is what drives everything these days. But, you know, 18 games in 18 days to begin the Nats season, that is a rough stretch. Like, that is tough, especially off a condensed spring training. And I'm not telling anyone to feel sorry for the Nats or play the violin for the Nats, but, you know, ideally, if you're trying to put out the best product possible, you're not having a team start out with 18 games 
in 18 days. So I don't think that MLB and the MLBPA would redo this because, again, it would cost them money. They want to play the 162, but this is not ideal, man. Like you really, especially early in a season, you really could use an off day here and there. 18 straight days to begin a season. That is a tough, tough order. The thing is, this was the original schedule. You know, it's not like this was a reconfigured thing that forced them into this issue. This is what they were going to play after the initial first two series against the Mets and Phillies. Now they had two scheduled days off within that. They would have played opening day at City Field, had a day off, finished that series, and then would have had another day off around the Philly series and the home opener, which was only two games. So yes, it's a bad thing that this wound up being the uh, opening stretch for them. But I mean, the CBA allows for 20 games in 20 days. Anything more than that has to get approval from the players as far as, you know, rescheduling doubleheaders and things like that or make updates. I would have thought they would really try to avoid doing this at all, especially, like you said, early in the season to make any team, even if the season started on time, to then say, okay, you're going to get a couple days off at the beginning, but then you got to play 18 in a row with travel, with, you know, no off days coming off road trips. Something that I've found to be odd is, you know, they're required to give you an off day when you fly back from like two time zones away, but not when you're closer than that. But some of these trips are still, you know, two-hour flights, and sometimes you're playing getaway night games, you're playing four o'clock getaway games, and have to play the very next night. I don't love that. I don't think the players love it either. I don't think the teams love it. And I'm surprised that hasn't been addressed more as a quality of life thing that you would think a lot of them would care about. Yeah, I mean, personally, I wouldn't mind extending the season by a little bit to insert some more off days. I certainly wouldn't mind cutting down the season to, say, 154 and having more off days, but I don't think that's going to be happening. But I just don't think it's good really for anybody to have teams playing like every single day. I don't. It's not good for the product. I think for fans, it becomes almost like too much product to consume. So, And when you are a team that has pitching issues coming off of a condensed camp, like it does make things challenging. This is not easy what Davey's trying to do right now. Every game, three to five relievers. Every game, your starter doesn't go more than five and a third innings. Like, good luck trying to, <laughs> trying to figure stuff out. It's tough. And I think that's what's so frustrating about these last two games of the Pirates. Because again, the bullpen actually did fairly well. But one guy each game was off. And that was enough to end up costing you the series. So we shall see. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well. Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. That's Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. If you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats chat podcast, email Tim Shovers. Let him know that you're interested. We'd love to have you. Again, the email address is Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Nats chat podcast. Subscribing costs you nothing. Make sure that you never miss an episode. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please write like a one or two sentence review saying how much that you like the podcast, the ratings, and the reviews help us out a lot. And we thank you very much for doing those. And we thank you very much for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. Don't forget, we are with you after every Nats game. We'll see if we are with you on Tuesday of uh, a game being played on Monday. We'll see again. The forecast doesn't look promising, but who knows? Uh, all Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. And we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.